Okay, this is like still, okay. This is nothing for you guys. You guys are like, okay. That's right, you Chicago back there. So you, I pulled up, Cleveland had the window down, drinking coffee. I said, he from Chicago, man. He like, man. So this is nothing to the Midwest. On Friday, I was getting gas, and it was so cold, I stopped at $10. I was like, you know what, I can't do this. Nope. Not today, Satan. Not today. Put that thing in. They was like, he's cheap. I was like, nah, he's cold. I was like, I didn't expect it to be seven degrees out. So, All right, well, normally on Christmas, it's the pastor's job to present a very simple understanding of the birth of Jesus Christ. And I agree with that assessment. But we are in a unique series as a church where we are looking at the storyline of the Bible from a supernatural sort of worldview where there's the cosmic powers of good, which represent God and divine beings that he created on his side. And then there's the cosmic powers of darkness that represent Satan and and those supernatural beings that are on his side. And so this is a major theme in the Bible, and I can, and you probably know this just from your understanding of the Bible, but the birth of Jesus is a significant battle between the cosmic powers of good and evil. It is a battle. This is not just, and obviously Jesus is not just an ordinary human being, but the circumstances surrounding his birth are a battle. Very few times do we get to see sort of a battle happening. We assume the battle's happening. We understand that it exists, but very few scenes show us, wow, look at this at work. You get to see all the different ways God's strategies against evil, evil strategies against God, all play out in this particular birth story. So I thought uh, I I could just give a traditional story of the birth of Christ, which would be wonderful. This is an amazing moment that we celebrate. And we're not, be clear, we're not celebrating December 25th. We don't even know if that's when he was born. We're celebrating the birth of our Savior, not the day of his birth. In order to kind of figure this out, I want to make one point. This is the only point I'm going to make today. It's one main point. I'm going to make a couple subpoints. Here's the point of today's message. And this is from the supernatural storyline perspective. Here's the point. Very simple. They, meaning the cosmic powers of evils, they couldn't stop a baby. That's the point. They couldn't stop a baby. They couldn't stop a baby. That's the main point today. All right? Now let me show you how the enemy works. To show you how the enemy works, We have to start somewhere disconnected from the story, and then we'll work our way back, all right? So let's open up to 2 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 24 through 26. This is Paul writing on behalf of God to a young pastor named Timothy and helping him understand how to interact with people in the world. And he uses uses this language. Beginning in verse 24, here's what he says. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, But be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses 
and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So here's God's perspective that there are people who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Now, these people don't walk around and look like they're, it's not like they're like, you know, like the horror movies that we see, right? But there are people who reject, do not believe in Christ. And the Bible says, well, these people, some people belong to the devil. And so he works through, through people. The cosmic powers of darkness, this war, God uses people. The enemy uses people. It's not like we just all of a sudden grab some popcorn and watch a couple of angels go at it with a couple of demons. And we're just like, wow, Lord, that's a good hit. That's not what happens. It's, it's not something that we see, but it plays out through the societies that we live in. There are people that belong to the devil and those that belong to God. Where this all came from, we have to go back to Genesis 3.15. Here's a story briefly of Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were created, and they were told, Adam was told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a serpent shows up, which we know as Satan. He deceives Eve. He, you know, he tempts her. She bites the fruit. Adam eats it. And then there are consequences that happen to all of creation. And when God was talking to, in his response to this disobedience, he spoke first to the serpent, then to Adam, then to Eve, and then to Adam. So to the serpent, he said this, I will put enmity, which is hatred, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We'll make two observations from this verse. First, the devil has offspring. Okay, offspring are simply children. It's another way of saying children. I, we personally say children are our kids. It's rare that I'm like, those are my offspring right there. Those are my seeds. Like, we don't talk like that, right? We say, those are my kids, those are my children, those are my boys, whatever, whatever you have. Those are my sons and daughters. But he says, I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. So it's the first time we realize, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. So Satan has children? He has offspring? You know, when I, before I was a Christian, I don't know if you guys heard, like, you know, you hear all these sort of superstitious kind of colloquialism. So whenever it would rain and it was sunny, they would be like, the devil's beating his wife. Anybody else heard that? People said the devil's beating his wife. And I was like, Dad, who would marry that dude? Like, what's that? <laughs> that dude is every sinful category possible. Like, you're marrying a cheater, an adulterer, a liar. I mean, who would marry him? I never could understand that. And when I became a Christian, I was like, whoever made that up was probably from Satan. But here, clearly, God is saying there are offspring that belong to you, and they are going to be at odds with the offspring that come from this woman. Now, we're going to get into this more next week, so I'm not going to say too much more about that. But it's clear that God is saying you have people that belong to you, and they're going to be at odds with people who do not belong to you. So 2 Timothy 2, where we started, is in many ways the fulfillment of a prophetic judgment that God made against Satan, that there's going to be conflict worked out through people. And you're going to hate each other. The devil has children. Second observation from this verse. 
a child that is not his will crush him. Now, you have to understand this, and we're going to get into this more in the next two weeks. Even though there are cosmic powers of darkness, created beings that God created that rebelled against him, they know who God is. Why they rebelled is beyond us. I mean, God gave every creature free will, as far as we know, and you can't have free will unless you have a choice. So there has to be, in order for you to have a free will, you have to have choices to do some things or not do them. So we'll, we'll unpack it in this series, but for now, let's just, that's just the reality. They, they know who God is, and they know that when God says something, it's going to happen. Now, until this rebellion, there was no reason for them to worry about probably God saying things against them because they hadn't sinned against them. But now, God is telling them that there is someone coming from this woman they're sharp. They understand that God is saying a human being will be born and is going to crush your authority in the world. Now, when God said that to Satan, it was standing room only in the supernatural world. They weren't doing anything else. Everyone's at this scene. So Satan and any cosmic powers of darkness that heard that statement, that would rebel against God, knew that at some point someone's going to be born that God has said is going to crush us. This was a prophetic judgment against Satan and all cosmic powers of evil. It's because he manipulated Eve to sin against God. When he speaks, even the demons that rebel against him understand when he speaks, he's truthful. We have multiple examples in the Gospels of demons possessing people running up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, we know who you are, son of the most high God. Have you come to torment us before the appointed time? They understand our time is limited. And they didn't know, wait a minute, is it now? I thought this, this isn't the appointed time. They know who he is. They know what he came to do. So when God said this in Genesis 3.15, they were like, all right, the war has started. We need to stop this. We need to figure out who this is, when this is, and try to stop it. But God never said who it was and when it was. And so you have cosmic powers of evil throughout human history, many of their religions emphasizing the killing of children. The killing of children, particularly males. Because it's a he. So you see this throughout these religions, Molech sacrificing their children. Cosmic powers of darkness are on edge. They don't know when this is going to happen. Fast forward a couple thousand years, just under 2,000 years. Fast forward. Maybe longer. Enter a man named Herod. Now, five years ago, I did a message on the Christmas story from Herod's point of view. Five years ago. 
Some of you remember that, some of you don't. Shoot, most of us don't remember what happened before COVID, let's be honest. I thought stuff that was like two years ago was like 12 years ago. I was like, wow, that was, I don't think I was here. It was like, Kurt, that was 2019. I was like, really? I thought it was 1999, everything. I'm, going, I'm up here sounding like Prince, 1999. That's probably, that's not even helping. Merry Christmas. All right, so enter Herod. Let me tell you a little bit about Herod because now we're going to go to Matthew 2. Let me give you a little, just a bit, I said this five years ago, but it'd be helpful to refresh your memory and to inform those of you who never heard this. Herod was the king of Jerusalem at the time, and there was an author named Josephus. He's a popular sort of Jewish writer, and we get a lot, and I, he wasn't a Christian, as far as I know. Is that right, Carl? He wasn't a Christian. Okay. He was not a Christian. But he writes about things that we get some of our credibility from because he's not a Christian, but he testifies to some of the things that the Bible says. And so he writes this about Herod, who was the king at the time of Jesus' birth. Here's what he says. He says, Herod had great passion and also great jealousy concerning his wife, Marianne. She learns of Herod's plans to murder her, and she stops sleeping with him. Herod puts her on trial on a charge of adultery. I mean, I mean that's, you know, your husband wants to kill you. I really don't want to be intimate with the guy, right? I, it's not a no-brainer, right? He puts her on trial for charge of adultery. Her sister, Salome, was chief witness against her, and he kills her. He has her executed. This is 29 B.C. 28 B.C., Herod executed his brother-in-law for conspiracy. And then he builds a large theater, an amphitheater, in his name. Years later, 20 years later in 8 B.C., Herod accused his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, of high treason. Herod reconciled with Augustus, who also gave him the permission to proceed legally against his sons. The court hearing took place in what we would consider Beirut before a Roman court. His sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, were found guilty and executed. The succession changed so that the, the other Herod became the accessor to the throne. In 6 BC, Herod went against the Pharisees. So here you have a very evil man. I could run down a lot more, but this isn't a typical Sunday for us. I could say a lot more. So you have to understand, this is the mind of Herod. If we take Genesis 3, that you will have offspring, Satan, and we take 2 Timothy 2 to be true, then we, it's clear that Herod has been taken captive to do the devil's will. Now let's read. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and I quote, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This is an interesting question, right? They show up expecting everyone to know this already. They're asking them, where, where is the king of the Jews? They're expecting there to be celebration, like you guys have been tracking this. We've been tracking it. Where is he? We want to worship him. And here's what verse 2 tells us. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. 
So these magi, these three wise men show up and they think, hey, where's the king? Where's the one who was born, king of the Jews? And Herod hears this and he's troubled. He's worried about losing his throne. But Herod's not just troubled. Cosmic powers of darkness are troubled. Because Herod is worried about losing his throne, but they've realized we missed it. The prophetic judgment from Genesis 3.15 is here. The baby's born. We missed it. We missed it. Keep in mind that evil is everywhere. They have had their eye out, and they missed it. So Herod is concerned, he's troubled, and Jerusalem is troubled. Now, they're troubled for two different reasons. Herod's troubled because of losing his throne. Cosmic powers of darkness are troubled because the prophetic judgment has, come, has been fulfilled. But Jerusalem is troubled because Herod's a loose cannon. What does this mean for us? They're in fear because of his leadership. He's unpredictable. He's dangerous. But they could also be in fear because, man, if he's the king, what is the other king of the Jews going to be like? Is he going to be like Herod or worse than Herod? So everybody's troubled except the, the three wise men. They're excited. Beginning in verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them, sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So here you have the strategy of Herod doing the devil's will. Notice that initially in verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, notice that he has this public assembly of asking everything that he can know about what they know about where the Christ was to be born. He does this in front of everyone. This gives the appearance. Now, we don't know the timing of it, but let's just imagine that the, mad, the three wise men show up. Where's the king? And they, they don't know what he's talking about. So then Herod summons all of these people together to ask questions as if we're all excited. Seems great. But then you get to verse 7, and it says, Herod summoned the wise men secretly. Secretly. So he went public, hey, when is the Christ to be born? And as he hears the news, he's more troubled. So now he says, hey, get those three guys, and I want to meet with them secretly. Why not meet with them in front of everyone, Herod? Let them hear. Let everyone hear what he has to say. You called everyone and wanted to know, when, is he, when was he going to be born? But he meets with them secretly and ascertained, found out when the star had appeared. He didn't ask that in front of everyone. He asked it privately because he's worried. 
and the will of the devil that he's doing is worry. They're trying to figure out what and where is he. And then in verse 8, he says, go and search diligently. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Remember when Jesus told the Pharisees in John 8, he said, your father is the devil and he's the father of lies and you lie like your father. He's lying like his father. Let me worship him. Let me know. Send message to me so I too may come and worship him. Herod's the king. You know what Herod could have done? Hey, let me send you a whole bunch of people to go with you to help you along the journey. So that when we see him, because the more people there, the more accountability it is. He didn't do anything. He said, you three go search. And when you find out, let me know. Herod's worried, but more importantly, the powers of darkness. They're trying to figure out, where is he? Where is he? Let's use these humans to find out, where is he? Why don't they know where he is? Why can't they find him? They're in a lot of places. How did they not see this? Continuing in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, wise men became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's make three observations from this section. First observation, God had to act supernaturally. So here's where you see the war is really taking shape. Because God acts supernaturally by appearing in two dreams, two visions. In verse 12, he warns the wise men. Why does he have to warn them? Says he warns them in a dream not to go back to Herod. Well, Herod's the king of Israel and he's convincing. He's a good liar. 
It's a good line. These men probably think, hey, when we find the baby, we'll tell Herod, this is going to be great. They're excited. The scripture says, to the pure, all things are pure, right? So to the pure, you're innocent. Like, yeah, I think he was. So they have to be warned in a dream. Supernaturally, God imposes. And says, don't go back to him. Don't go to him. This is a battle now. This is not just Herod and God's intervening because the powers of darkness are at play. So this is a divine injunction where God shows up and says, don't do this. Don't go there. Then the second time we see him you know, involve himself supernaturally is he tells Joseph to take the child to Egypt. The cosmic powers of evil are strong in Egypt. Even though God in Exodus showed his authority over them, there's a serious evil presence in Egypt. They should have been able to know where he is, especially in Egypt. At this point, God is in Israel. He doesn't have people in Egypt. Those people have been taken captive to do the devil's will. They should have known he's here. He's here. But they didn't because they're not big enough. They're too small. God. God acts supernaturally, intervening in this war. He's not just letting things play out. He's like, all right, let me get involved, give direction. Second observation, progressive revelation. Last week, I gave a definition of progressive revelation. I said this. Progressive revelation, which, is, which means God revealing things over time, and they start off one thing, and then it becomes something else or bigger or more fuller when you realize the whole story. Right? It's like watching a movie where you're trying to figure out who done it, and then as you watch the movie and it fills out, then by the end you're like, ah, I knew it was him, even though you didn't, but it feels good to say <laughs> you knew it was that person, right? It feels good. You just got to be, I, I knew it was him all the time. We play mafia here, and people are like, man, every, every, every time somebody gets voted out, they say, I knew it was you, but you ain't accused them in the game. <laughs> right? So progressive revelation is the method where God progressively reveals what's going on throughout the Bible. And then all of a sudden, when you get to Jesus, it's like, oh. So here was the definition I gave for progressive revelation last week. I said, it's the method that God uses both to clarify reality for his people and hide his ultimate intentions from the cosmic powers of darkness. So God didn't just in the Old Testament just say, I'm going to just lay it out so they knew what to do, where to be at, and all of it. No, no, no. He sprinkled it through in ways they would have never known. 
One of the first proofs of this is this. In, in verse 15, second half of 15b, where he says this, quoting from the Old Testament. He says, this was to, to, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. The original context of this passage is Hosea. Hosea 11.1. One. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 of Hosea. Let's look at the original context this came out of. Beginning in verse 1 of Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away, and they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Okay, so the original context of out of Egypt I called my son, God is describing Israel, which he calls his son, they're faithful, they're unfaithfulness. He says, out of Egypt I called my son, but the more they were called, the more they went and worshipped other gods. So he's referring to the Passover, when God brought them out. So he's looking at Israel as a son, and he says, out of Egypt I called my son, but the context is, but they have, I brought them out of slavery, but they're going back to slavery by essentially worshiping the gods that I saved them from. This is what he's saying. But in the midst of progressive revelation, out of Egypt, I called my son is a divinely cryptic way of talking about Jesus. The true Israel knows that it is his son. They would have never known that. There's no way you could read that and see that. But God is showing you, ha, ha, ha. It did mean this, but it also meant this. The enemy wouldn't have known that because they could have read that and been like, all right, this is just describing what Israel did. This is describing what we did to Israel to have them worship other gods. But God says, but in that description is what Jesus is going to do to fulfill prophecy. This wasn't a prophetic statement. It was a statement of recollection from God. But it was also a statement of prophecy because when he sent Jesus to Egypt, it was to fulfill this phrase. It was a phrase in the middle of a verse that would have been obscure to anyone watching it, reading it, except God. He's hiding what he's doing so the cosmic powers of evil have no idea what's going on. This was divinely cryptic. And I imagine God laughing. <laughs> Just a... <laughs> Simple. Since he's the true Israel, Jesus, he went back to Egypt. God sent him to Egypt. And this is essentially a redo. Let's go back to Egypt. So go to Egypt. Because essentially, for the, for the Israelites, this is where it all started, in Egypt. We're slaves. God saves us out, brings us out, and then we're established as God's people. So he says, all right, 
Jesus is going to go back to Egypt. I'm going to bring him out of Egypt. And here we go. Here we go again. Let's read this. True Israel. Israel goes back to Egypt, calling him out like I did the old Israel. But the old Israel was unfaithful and worshiped other gods. This Israel will be faithful and worship the only God. Y'all better stop hyping me up, man. This is Christmas. Coming where you at, where I'm from. Don't get me excited. Second, second, second verse. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. The original context is Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Now, this chapter is a little different. You can probably pick up what's going on here. The entire chapter is about turning mourning into joy, and it has this new covenant language. A covenant is essentially like a contract that God makes with people. So the Old Testament was a covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham, and the, and the action of the covenant was circumcision. And so there's a contract. God says, you do this, and I will do this. It's a contract, essentially, is what a covenant is. So Jeremiah 31 is God saying, I'm going to be making a new contract with people, and I'm going to put my law on their heart so that they will obey me. So the entire chapter is talking about the inevitable obedience that's going to come because God's going to put his spirit in people. But the way it's listed, there's no way that cosmic powers of evil would have thought this is describing what we're going to do through Herod in the future. It's there but it's not there. So we had God working supernaturally, second observation, progressive revelation, third and final observation, the killing of children. Remember Genesis 3, 15. I will put hatred, enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And the cosmic powers of evil know someone's going to be born that's going to destroy us, and we need to destroy him. The best way to destroy him is to destroy him as a baby. And this is why Herod wanted to meet with them secretly to find out all that they could. When did the star appear? Where was it? He's thinking. He's doing math. The cosmic powers of darkness working through him are figuring out, okay, that means this baby cannot be more than two years old because they said the star appeared at this time and it can't be more than two years old. So what does he do to try to, to, try to get to the, from Genesis 3.15, that idea of wanting to kill Herod sends soldiers to kill all of these male children that are two years old and younger. And the voice of the mothers and fathers that are crying out. I mean, can you imagine? 
you know, all of us who have children in this room, even when our children are grown, we love them. I mean, one of the, one of the worst things for any parent is to have their child go missing. When our school year started this year, my, my kids are all in, they're in three different public schools. And when the school year started, we found out that the bus system didn't have as many employees working for them. So our kids were coming home at crazy times. And my youngest is first year in middle school. And we didn't know at times where he was. And we were struggling. So on day three, I said, son, guess what? You getting the phone. He danced like David did when the Ark of the Covenant. When the Ark of the Covenant came back, he was dancing like David. Because he wasn't supposed to get an iPhone until next year. Oh, he started dancing. We walked into AT&T to get the phone. You know, Verizon, no, AT&T. Verizon is of the devil. No, I use them for cable and other things. They're good people. We walked into AT&T, and the lady who was helping us, she said, how can I help you? I said, I want to get my son a phone. She said, wow, all these parents are coming in to bring, get phones for their kids. I said, are they from this county? She said, yeah. I said, because all, their, all them kids ride the bus, and we don't know where our kids are. He came home at like 6.15 one night. I was riding around like I'm from in the hood, like looking for somebody. Leaning with the windows down. Saw the principal, rolled the window down slow, like, hey, where my son at? These are your kids. I don't care where you're from. You are going to protect your children because apart from your faith in the Lord and maybe your spouse, they mean the most to you. They are precious to you. You do whatever you can, even when they're older. You, can, you love, you're, they're still your children. I hug and kiss my boys all the time. As I tell you what, when you're 40 years old, I'm hugging and kissing you because y'all are still my babies. So imagine soldiers coming in to a village, to a town, unannounced, and they just start killing children, and there's nothing the people can do about it. They're not strong enough, and they are crying out. And the cosmic powers of evil are so evil that they will kill all these children in hopes to kill one. They killed all these children looking for one, and they missed them. They couldn't stop. We end with this, Matthew 2, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, 
so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would, never, he would be called a Nazarene. So here's the Alpha and Omega of God, right? Herod dies. Uh, you can go back now. But Joseph hears that Herod's son is still king, and he's afraid. So the legacy of wanting to kill this child, the cosmic powers of darkness didn't stop with Herod. Herod had to tell his son, and it keeps going and going. He's afraid, and then he's warned. It says this in, in verse 22. He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So Herod's son, who's evil, who he's afraid of, is still looking for the child. It's supernaturally Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, is told by God, go over here to this region of Galilee. And you're going to live in a city called Nazareth. And it seems like random acts and occurrences, but it's actually fulfilling prophetic word. It was spoken by the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So all of these circumstances are at play. The cosmic powers of evil have no idea what's going on. No idea why they can't catch this kid. They couldn't stop the baby. So the Christ is born, and with him, all hope is lost. So around the globe, many people will celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And it is an amazing, amazing reality. Many people will celebrate Christmas, the act of generosity and giving, which in many ways, shape, and form, as much as we call it pagan, if you think about the impact of the birth of the Savior in the Christmas season, even in a society that doesn't worship him, still figures that season to be a time of generosity, of giving, of love. We get upset. Some Christians get upset because we're supposed to say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. But what you don't get is that even though they can suppress the reality of what this is about, the birth of Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of his life is so powerful that even in non-Christian society, they still recognize this as a time to be generous. This is why you'll see Salvation Army out there and people will drop money in. Not because they're believers. They're people just dropping money because it's what you should do. It's Christmas. Jesus' life is so impactful that most of society, most of society recognizes that kindness, generosity, truthfulness, all the things that Christ, that's a part of his character, they recognize these as good things. What society do you know of? Even ones that we call evil regimes, they have laws and rules to protect people from evil. Jesus' birth is significant even to those who do not believe in him because they benefit from the impact of his life in the world. 
And so while this is Christmas for us, may those of us who genuinely believe in Jesus remember that it's not a, a, a day that we celebrate. It's a cataclysmic moment that God comes into the humanity in real time, real time. Even if people who don't believe in Jesus recognize he was a real person, Josephus, Tacitus, and different people, Jewish writers, they recognize he was a real person. These things actually really did happen. We benefit from it. But for those of us who do believe, we really, really are in a battle to believe this and live this out. And we don't just remember his birth, we remember his death. So in a moment, we're going to close remembering his death. But I want to say something to those of you who may be in a place where this isn't what you believe. First and foremost, thank you for being here. You may have come out of compulsion because you were invited by a family member or whatever, but or you may have come out of curiosity. We're glad you're here. The message of Jesus is one that does include you. The message of Jesus is a message that says, listen, I came because there was no one, no human being that was capable of obeying God the way he wanted to. So I chose to come down to earth, live perfectly in perfect obedience to God. But then I died on the cross and took the punishment for all the people because they would disobey God in ways and are worthy of punishment. But I took that punishment so that you wouldn't have to. And then I died and rose from the dead proving that I truly am the Savior of the world. And I invite you to believe in me. Now, obviously, I'm speaking as if God is. I don't want you to believe in me. <laughs> that wouldn't be good at all. But this isn't just for us on Christmas, and it's not about a holiday. This is really about a way of life and a way of eternal life. Like Jesus is asking you to consider, to consider believing in him. And not just consider, like, let me think about it, but he's asking you. And you, everyone's in different places. We understand. But he didn't come here just so that stories about him could be told. He came here so that people would hear this and think, wow, there's no, there's no other story like this. And there's a lot of people who believe this. Christianity is not about being a better person. <laughs> I think believing in Jesus does make us better people. Christianity is not just about unconditional love. It's about transformational love. Unconditional love says, come as you are. Transitional love says, don't stay as you can. God is turning us into people that reflect him and letting us stay with him in heaven for eternity. So this isn't a story just for Christians. 
This isn't a story that is one of many stories that lead to God. There's a lot of stories that lead to God, but none of them have Jesus. None of those gods came into human history and, and did what he did for his people. Most of those gods, they create laws that you must meet. And if you don't meet them, you hope to do enough. Jesus said, I'm enough. So what I'd like to do now is, let's sing one more song. Let's close out with one song and then we'll end with remembering his death. And then we'll go finish celebrating with our families. Amen?
simply to focus on a holiday, per se. While we don't knock holidays, what we want to remember is your life gave us life. while there's so much that we don't understand about this battle between you and the cosmic powers of darkness, we thank you that you are giving us some, some insight into what's happening because it directly affects us. And so, Lord, as we, as we celebrated and reminded ourselves of your birth, now, now may we remember your death for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated if you'd like. If you do not have a communion element, please get one from right in the back. This is something that we do every Sunday. And this is something that Jesus asked to be done by people who believe in him. So while we are grateful that anyone is welcome to come to this service, but with this particular act, this is what Jesus asked those who believe in him to do to remember what he's done. So if you're not a Christian yet, we'd ask you not to participate in this particular part of the service. But if you're curious as to why I'll be here a little bit, well, you can ask someone who brought you why. But this is for those of us who genuinely believe in Jesus and who, who are, whose lives are shaped by wanting to honor him. There are very few things that Jesus said do in remembrance of me in the Bible. In fact, I can't think of many. But this is one of them. So today, we remember this birth and the supernatural circumstances surrounding it, but now we close by remembering his death and how we are included in that. His life gave us life. His death gave us eternal life. So we take this and remember that his body was broken on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins to rescue us from being held captive by the devil to do his will. Let's eat together. And this juice is representative of his blood that was shed. And this blood that was shed is what allows us to have our sins forgiven and to have a relationship of all things, a relationship with God. And even though sometimes we don't feel it and understand it, it is a relationship that God says he has towards those who believe in Jesus. Most religions have to guess what their relationship with their God is like based on their works. We just have to believe what our relationship was like based on his work. So his blood that was shed is what this juice reminds us of and we drink in memory of that.
Father, we pray and we thank you for your son. Thank you that people were able to come today or watch online. But I pray that as many of us are celebrating the exchange of gifts and the, the just the common decency of generosity and kindness, may those of us who believe celebrate for a different reason. Our giving gifts is not economical, but theological, because you've given us a gift. You've given us the gift of salvation, the gift of hope, the gift of identity, spiritual gifts. When we give gifts, we're imitating you. So our gift giving is not an essence of Santa Claus. Our God didn't go down a chimney when he rode from the grave. So, Father, we just thank you, and we're grateful. And for some of us, this is cold weather, so help us to get through it. May the rest of this day, week, and our lives live in gratitude of the gift you've given us for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas.